Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for Concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-centered leader in confessional broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind that is the mind of Christ. And to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians reads through the book of Concord and discusses it. And we are continuing today to make our way through the power and primacy of the Pope. We'll actually be bringing it to its conclusion today. And to do that, we have fellow confessor with us, Reverend Dr. Kirk Clayton. And he is pastor at Zion in Mascuda, I believe it is. Is that correct, Pastor Clay? That is correct. It is so great to have you with us here today. Maybe I can bring this music down. It just keeps going on and on and on. There we go. All right. Uh, so, yes, we are continuing to uh, make our way through the Book of Concord. Uh, and if you haven't been following with us for the last six years or so, uh, we, we are going through in chronological order uh, the documents of the Book of Concord as they were published and, and put out there. And uh, we are bringing to a conclusion today our look at the power and primacy of the Pope. So next week, we'll be moving on to the formula of Concord. You won't want to miss that. That'll be good. But you certainly don't want to miss today's episode either as we bring the power and primacy of the Pope to its conclusion. Lots of implications, of course, at the time of the Reformation, these sorts of issues were front and center, and they continue to be issues that still plague us in different ways, um, but the similar issues in the church still today. And so uh, definitely a needed confession for us still yet today. And uh, just to kind of catch us up to speed where we've been, uh, the Lutherans have been making the case um, about what is the right scriptural uh, authority to those who serve in the church. Um, what what authority does the word give? And that's that's been our highlight. We, we connected this all the way back into the small called articles that the word is what grants authority to the church and those who serve in it. And uh, and and our case as Lutheran Christians is, is that the office of the papacy, the pope, and his bishops and kind of the church structure are in violation of what the word gives. And especially we've seen here in this concluding section um, that uh, Melanchthon, who's the author of the power and primacy of the Pope, has especially uh, made the case that, uh, um, as he's made throughout, that as, as the Pope and his bishops have defended impious doctrines, that is, uh, things that the, the scriptures do not lead us in, and they refuse to ordain pastors for the churches. We, we highlighted that on the show last week. Um, and they don't then they're not going to recognize them as true bishops then because they're not following the word. And then today we're going to get into this matter of jurisdiction, uh, which is which is also an issue. Uh, but to kind of connect these together, we ended with paragraph 73 last week. And uh, we'll be picking up a paragraph 74. Uh, today, but I think paragraph 73 is worth rereading as it really sets up where we're going to go today. So, uh, picking up with paragraph 73, 
in the document Power and Primacy of the Pope by the Book of Concord. We are using the Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, the reader's edition of the Book of Concord, available to you from CPH, the publishing arm of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. This is paragraph 73. We have spoken of ordination, which alone, as Jerome says, distinguished bishops from other elders. There is no need to discuss the other duties of bishops. It is not necessary to speak about confirmation or the consecration of bells, nor other such delusions, which are almost the only things they have kept. Something, though, must be said about jurisdiction. Certainly, the common jurisdiction of excommunicating those guilty of clear crimes belongs to all pastors, citing 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The bishops have tyrannically transferred this to themselves alone and have used it for their own gain. It is certain that the officials, as they are called, used an intolerable license. Either because of greed or because of other immoral desires, they tormented themselves, or I'm sorry, they tormented people and excommunicated them without any due process of law. What tyranny it is for the officials in the states to have arbitrary power to do this. And what kinds of issues did they abuse this power? Not in punishing true offenses, but in punishing violations of fasts or festivals or such silly things. They sometimes did punish adulteries, but in this they often harass, abuse, and defame innocent and honorable people. Besides, since adultery is a most grievous offense, certainly no one should be condemned without due process of law. We're going to go ahead and pause there, and I'm going to throw it to our confessor, Dr. Kirk Clayton, to set up for us. What are we talking about when we're talking about jurisdiction, uh, especially as it pertains to the church? And then what, what's the case that he's, he's beginning to lay out here with reference to jurisdiction? Well, it seems to me that in our uh, usage of the terms today, instead of jurisdiction, we might be more familiar with using the term separation of church and state, and that there were many things in Luther's time that the church had taken unto itself that perhaps more rightly belonged in the other realm, the other kingdom, that of government. And so the church claimed to itself the right to decide all sorts of things. Um, a little bit off the topic, but in an extreme case, even to raise armies, make war, things like that, that are clearly given to government, not to the church. Romans 13 would be the most clear example of that. Exactly, right? right. And so the Roman Catholic Church had taken many of these things unto themselves and were um, ruling the culture in both kingdoms, whereas I think what we see here is we're setting up what the proper jurisdiction of the church is, is that the church is given to proclaim the gospel, to administer the sacraments, not to make and minister secular laws and set up courts to judge secular laws, which the church at that time had been doing. And so in a sense, this is a call for the church to be not the government, but the church. And I think that's what Melanchthon is driving at here, that the church had uh, become so involved in the secular affairs of the state and exceeding its jurisdiction as the church that it had lost sight of doing what only the church is given to do. 
the government does not have the job of proclaiming the gospel. It is not given to the government to provide the word and sacraments to its citizens. That's not the government's job. That's the church's job. But because the church had started playing around with all the things that God has given for government to do and setting up jurisdictions in that realm, the church was then forsaking what only the church can do, which is proclaim the gospel, forgive sins, administer the sacraments, bless people with baptism, the Lord's Supper, confession, absolution. And so all these things that the church should have been doing, the church wasn't doing, and all the things the church didn't need to be doing, the church was doing. So it was a completely upside down, messed up situation. And Melanchthon is trying to call the church back and say, when bishops pretend that they are, say, secular governors and forsake doing the duties that they have in the church, then we have no loyalty to them. They're not doing what God has placed them there to do. And if they're not going to provide the means of grace, the word and the sacraments, the people need the means of grace, the word and the sacraments. So we're going to have to find ways to continue to provide that to God's faithful people. All right. And and to make sure I clear it up here, because you brought up the terminology of, you know, maybe it's more clear for us in separation of church and state. And that that could be a whole nother show, probably on another mm-hmm. topic and so forth, of, of how we rightly understand what we mean when we use such terminology and so forth. You're not making the case here that the church has nothing to say for how we live in the civil realm of the world, right? No, not at all. Not at all. However, right. uh, the, the church can teach God's word that its people live a certain way in the secular world, but the church does not make, govern, administer, and judge the laws of the secular world. Now, God has given, as you mentioned in Romans 13, uh, government to do that. Now, the church certainly can advise and proclaim to its people through teaching, through preaching, through the study of Scripture, that this perhaps is an unjust law that needs to be addressed, or that even within an unjust law, we need to understand it this way and do this but not that. Certainly, the church has a huge role in shaping and guiding its members as to how to navigate its way through secular culture. The church does not have the calling to be the sole source of authority in that secular culture. So it's a a very, very good distinction that you bring up. Um, Yes, please understand that I'm saying the church has nothing to say about what happens in the secular realm or in the the, uh, realm or the kingdom of the state. Not at all. But they are not placed there as the rulers of that kingdom. They are placed there to bring God's first of all, his his gift of gospel and the word and sacraments to his people. But within that gospel, there's also the understanding that we bring the full counsel of God, both law and gospel to God's people, and say that in this other realm in which you live most of the days of your life, this is appropriate, this is not. Certainly the church is not called to silence its voice there in this document. Uh, but it's a recognition that the church in Luther's time had gone too far not just to teach their people the word of God as to how to live in culture, but trying to shape what that culture was authoritatively through setting up jurisdictions beyond what the church is called to do. And I like what you highlighted earlier, too, is that the the bishops were in essence then setting themselves 
itself up as governors, you know, these these secular mm-hmm. rulers. Um, and, and and you definitely saw that in the context of history, um, that you, you, you would have these, um, you know, uh, civil authorities that were also serving as bishops in the church, and and it, it and 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 it just was really messed up. And, and bishops, of course, buying and selling offices so they could control a larger or more wealthy territory. Of course, uh, Albrecht is one of the prime examples of that, which actually kind of in the background kicked off the whole Reformation in order to buy his seat as a bishop. He then uh, was able to sell indulgences, which kind of got Luther upset, and here we are today. Right, and and served the <laughs> purpose of the Pope in wanting to be, build the Basilica, right? Exactly. So, but the, the whole thing was that bishops wanted to gain additional bishoprics or additional locations to be bishop so that they could receive the income from those and then also have an influence in the secular government of that. And um, the bishops and the popes claimed for themselves that they had the divine authority from God to establish the secular rulers, that a secular ruler could not be placed into office, whether it was a duke or a king or an emperor, unless the pope or the bishop placed him in that office. With the understanding, then, if you weren't subjecting yourself as the ruler to the bishop or the pope, then he could have you removed through various means and place someone else in. And so even if the bishop was not the direct ruler of a territory, which in some cases there is very close to being that, they were at least the power behind the throne that dictated everything else that was going on. And still, they were overstepping the jurisdiction that God had given them. And in their all of their back room intrigue and all of their political machinations, they were losing sight of the fact that God had placed someone else there to do the the political dirty work, I guess, is the, the, the most charitable way I can describe it. Or just but the political work. The, the political the work. Okay, work. yes. Yeah. Much, much, uh, much less derogatory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but in getting into the political realm and spending all their time and energy in being kingmakers and trying to work behind the scenes and trying to influence policy and administration and jurisdiction, they weren't at all doing that which God had given only the church to do. And so that's why it's interesting in paragraph 43, uh, 73, where we started as the transition, it's not necessary to speak about confirmation or consecration of bells, which are almost the only things that they've kept. They have all these responsibilities as pastors responsible for the souls and care of God's people, and they were off playing politics and neglecting the care and souls of God's people. So, yeah, they maybe did a little bit with confirmation. Yeah, they may be worried a little bit about the bells, but, you know, what about caring for people in their times of crisis, time, caring for people in their times of needs? The bishops weren't there. And the people supervised by the bishops weren't there. They were completely missing the boat. They were not doing what they should have been doing, and they were doing what they were not given to do. And so nobody was being served well. And I like how you bring that in, because I I think that this is a very scriptural issue of why we get the exhortations we do, especially from Jesus in these regards, that they have um, neglected or abandoned their work of the gospel, Mm -hmm. uh, right? And, and, And this is constantly the danger that we fall into when it becomes about power and wealth and things of that nature. Um, This is why Jesus tells us, set not your mind on things below, but on things above, right? And and, and the gospel work, because as soon as we start focusing on the things below, that becomes our sole focus and just getting more and, and, 
and 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 maintaining that. And I think that's what we see play out in history and what you're highlighting for us is that it became about maintaining power. And that quest for power becomes overwhelming. Yeah, yeah. That, that they just completely abandon the gospel. Yeah, they have a few things hanging in there um, that, that is within their work. But now- I, it, was, uh, I was at oh, a presentation mm-hmm. a few years back and the, the speaker was a Christian, but much more operative in the secular realm in politics. And it was a, a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod uh, conference. And one of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod pastors asked him, knowing that he's much more active in politics, although a faithful Christian, not Lutheran himself, he said, well, don't you think the church should be more engaged in the realm where you deal in politics and in the secular realm? And the speaker, quite to the shock of everybody, said, now, why would you want to go and do something stupid like that? <laughs> you have the message of the gospel that only you can proclaim. Why would you want to go some, do something stupid like abandoning this life-saving message that you have to go play around elsewhere? Why? It reminds me of a parishioner I once had that he was a politician himself, Uh and he came to me and he said, you know, Pastor, I really need you to not get so caught up in politics and things like that, um, because this is the one respite I have. This Mm, is the place I have to come and be strengthened for the difficult work that I am called to uh, in service to people in the civil realm. Uh, And and so he was very thankful that we did not abandon in the church um, that primary work of the gospel because it was his respite and strength, right? But then I want to move on to this Mm -hmm. if I can. So then they're tormenting the people with certain punishments and he, and he, connects it in with and it's not even for you know like actual sins (laughs) that the church should be addressing that are coming up like adulteries and things like that right it's for silly things like breaking the fast and so forth and and that there's temporal punishments going on with this so say a little bit about that and those temporal punishments just happen to involve fines and money which are paid to the church and so do you see the situation where abuse could just be rampant that the roman catholic church had set up a tremendous money-making scheme in which they could um, use their supposedly secular and spiritual authority to extort money from the german peasants and not just because of, or not primarily even, because of spiritual issues of sin within the church, but, oh, hey, we saw you that you were not fasting on a day that we'd proclaimed to fast, so now you need to pay us a fine for that. And so then, of course, that becomes quite lucrative. And so then perhaps you you try to, through your political background, create more fast days to catch more people that aren't fasting to raise more fines. And in the meantime, again, they are doing nothing about serious spiritual offenses because those aren't oftentimes as visible on the surface and they actually require in-depth pastoral care and knowing your people and working with them very patiently, very quietly to find ways to address those real and serious sins and bring true repentance so that you can proclaim the absolution and bring forgiveness, which, by the way, is 
free. You can't make money off of forgiving someone their sins. Otherwise, this is a works righteous approach where, oh, hey, you're forgiven and now you owe me X number of, you know, whatever the, the German coin was at that point, or you owe me X number of dollars. Um, then forgiveness becomes about our ability to pay, not about God's fact that he has already paid. Uh, and so the actual implementation of God's work of leading his people to repentance and forgiving sins, which is what they're all are called to do, is a, um, a notoriously bad moneymaker because God has paid it all already and we can't charge for it. Uh, but that doesn't get church built now, does it? Such as St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, which was in need of being built at the time. And so instead of worrying on the care of souls and bishops and the priests, pastors under them, doing the slow and steady hard work with the people of preaching, bringing repentance, bringing people to the full and free forgiveness that Jesus Christ has already won for us, it's much easier to set up kind of pseudo sins of, oh, fasts that we can watch and see. Did you go and buy meat and eat it that day? Or um, other festivals that, oh, you're, you're not taking part in this, and then penalize financially for set these breaking these pseudo sins that they have set up as a fundraising scheme. This is not at all unlike what Jesus sees with the Pharisees in his time, that the Pharisees have set up all of these other outward regulations that they can check and see, oh, hey, pat myself on the back. I am doing them. What a good person I am. You aren't following all these additional outward things that I have said you should. Therefore, you are not a good person. Uh, and Jesus says, in all of this, you're losing the true worship. You're losing the true focus on what God has done for us and our response of thanksgiving and joy. And so what had happened here in Luther's time was, I think, not at all unlike what had happened with the Pharisees in Jesus' time in that they were majoring in minors and minoring in majors. So with that, uh, you know, this is something we highlight on the show a lot is that, you know, history does tend to repeat mm -hmm. itself in these things. So you, you you clearly see it going on at the time of Jesus with the Pharisees. It's going on in the Middle Ages. What are maybe some ways or do you think that there are some ways that we see this playing out in the church today? I, I think one of the struggles potentially for this is that, you know, at the time of uh, Jesus, you know, there, there was this real desire for the kingdom of God. And so they were willing to obey the Pharisees because of that. At the time of the Reformation, you know, death and plague and war are all around and they're, they're scared to death of death. Right. And, and they want some assurance of heaven and they're being directed to, um, you know, buying indulgences or paying money to the church and doing all these outward good works that aren't that are maybe good things to do, but aren't directed by scripture to, to do them as necessary for salvation, things of that nature. Right. Um, you know, I, I don't know. Sometimes I struggle in today's context. Do we, do we even have such things that we could, not that we want to, this is why Lutherans are notoriously bad at building projects and so forth. Cause we can't get the money quite as good because we like to give the gospel away for free. Right. Um, but uh, you know, w what are maybe some ways that we see it in our present culture today? Well, it's always a temptation for the church to be involved in the political realm in ways that are beyond healthy. As we tried to walk the fine line, as you clarified earlier in this show, 
the church should not be disconnected from culture and from the political realm, but it's always a temptation for the church to become over-involved in the political realm. And so when that happens, when the church is getting involved in open advocacy of certain topics, when the church is pushing individual particular political candidates, when the church is driving lobbying efforts on one side or another of a particular issue, two things happen. First, doing that sucks tremendous time and energy from whoever is making that leadership decision, whoever's organizing those projects. And there are only 24 hours in the day that I've found, maybe others have found more, but I found only 24, which some of them you want to sleep. And so the time that you are spending organizing a lobbying effort, by default is time you're not spending, if you're a pastor, hearing your people's confession, preparing your sermon, getting a Bible study ready, and all these other things are taking a back seat. And so the balance of time becomes problematic in that you only have so many hours in the day, and which is the more important calling? Delivering God's word to your people in a faithful and engaging way in your sermon on Sunday? or making sure you have all the speakers lined up for a rally on Capitol Hill on Saturday. You can't necessarily do both well, and only the church is going to proclaim the gospel. That's the first thing that happens. The second thing that happens is which one is going to be more publicized? Pastor preaches faithful gospel message, or uh, pastor involved in lobbying for XYZ cause on Capitol Hill on Saturday. Well, it's obviously the political involvement is going to catch more attention in the society. And so then that church becomes known not as the church that sends and administers the gospel and preaches the word. That church becomes known as, oh, that's the uh, political organization that supports XYZ cause. And so the church then becomes identified not with its primary mission, but with that which is secondary. Yeah, and that's an interesting thought. And you know, it's it's almost like we're looking for the kingdom, as it were, or our salvation in the civil realm. And so then we begin devoting ourselves entirely to that, and 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 maybe more than like a rally or so forth like that, you know, we, we only have so much time that we actually have the attention of our parishioners, as mm-hmm. we well know as pastors, right? And for every minute that I spend talking about this political candidate and where they stand or don't stand on certain issues and so forth is, is one less minute spent on God's word, which is forming us for how we live in the civil realm uh, with our mindset above. And, and, and I, I think that's an excellent highlight for us. I also want to bring us back, though, but it's going to have to come up in a later paragraph. So you'll have to join us right after our break here in a second. I, I want to understand where then is it appropriate that we still have jurisdiction when it comes to things that, that play out in the secular realm still as well. I, interesting question there, especially as um, you know, we see especially our Roman Catholic friends sometimes practice excommunication with things that happen in a political realm, and uh, Lutherans can certainly do that too. But for that, you'll have to join us right after this break. Ecclesiastes 10 verse 10 states, If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. Find this true wisdom in Christ 
on Sharper Iron every weekday morning at 8 a.m. here on Worldwide KFUO. Sharpen the iron of your faith together with two pastors as they take up the sword of the Spirit to proclaim the gifts of Christ crucified and risen for you. And welcome back to Concord Matters as we have our confessor with us today, the Reverend Dr. Kirk Clayton, who is pastor of Zion in Mascuda, Illinois. And I'm your host. I forgot to even introduce myself, but you regular listeners know I never introduce myself. I always forget. I'm Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of Emmanuel in St. Paul's, also in Southern Illinois. And we continue to wrap up today our study of the power and primacy of the Pope. Um, and we'll be moving on to the formula of Concord, but we're in, in the midst of a really good discussion here uh, where we're talking about the jurisdiction of bishops. You know, what is what is the authority that they have? What, what authority does the word give? Uh, and we've been highlighting that that authority is to carry out the gospel work, the work of the, the gospel kingdom. Uh, and, and, and there's certainly... Uh, you know, civil work to be carried out as well. Scripture speaks of that. But uh, whenever the two get mixed together, usually it's the gospel that gets forsaken. And so we've highlighted a lot of themes here. And, and I have a really important question that I think is just going to be a, a really good discussion for us as, as we take a look. And I kind of set it up there. It has to deal with excommunication when we see things happening in the secular world, the civil realm. Uh, but we're going to come back to that in a minute because I just want to finish out the thoughts and then I think this will, uh, or finish out the tax. And I think that this will really set up the rest of our discussion in the second half of the show. So I'm going to pick up with uh, paragraph 76. Again, this is the power and primacy of the Pope from the Book of Concord. And we're using the Concordia Lutheran Confessions Reader's Edition of the Book of Concord available to you from CPH, the publishing arm of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate. Paragraph 76, since bishops have tyrannically transferred this jurisdiction to themselves alone and have basely abused it, there is no need to obey bishops. Since there are just reasons why we do not obey, it is also right to restore this jurisdiction to godly pastors and to make sure that it is legitimately exercised for the reformation of morals and the glory of God. There remains the jurisdiction, according to church law, in cases that relate to church court, as they call it, and especially in cases of marriage. This, too, the bishops have only by human right, which is not a very old one. According to the Codex and Novella of Justinian, decisions about marriage at the time belong to the rulers. By divine right, earthly rulers must make these decisions if the bishops are negligent. Church law also concedes this, so for this jurisdiction also it is not necessary to obey bishops, since the bishop, bishops have framed unjust laws about marriages and observed them in their courts, there is a need to establish other courts. The traditions banning the marriage for those who have a spiritual relationship are unjust. Also unjust is the tradition forbidding an innocent person to marry after divorce, Matthew, citing Matthew 5 verse 32. Also unjust is the law that in general approves all secret and deceitful engagements in violation of parental rights. Also unjust is the law requiring the celibacy of priests. There are also other snares of conscience in their laws. There is no need to recite them all. Uh, I'm going to pause there and interject. It's because we've cited them as we've gone through the Augsburg Confession and the small called articles. We, we've cited them all before at some point in the Book of Concord. Uh, but uh, uh, go back and listen to the archives. Uh, picking up here again in, at the later part of paragraph 78. 
It is enough to say that there are many unjust laws of the Pope regarding marriage. Because of these, the rulers should establish other courts. So the bishops who are devoted to the Pope defend godless doctrine and godless services. They do not ordain godly teachers, and they aid the cruelty of the Pope. Besides, they have wrestled away the jurisdiction from pastors and exercise it tyrannically for their own profit. Finally, in marriage cases, they observe many unjust laws. So there are enough and necessary reasons why the churches should not recognize these men as bishops. They themselves should remember that riches have been given to bishops as alms for the administration and advantage of the churches. As the rule says, the benefit is given because of the office. Therefore, they cannot with a good conscience possess these alms and defraud the church. The church has need of this money to support ministers, aid education, care for the poor, and establish courts, especially for marriage. So great is the variety and extent of marriage controversies that there is need for a special court for which the endowments of the church are needed. Peter predicted that there would be godless bishops who would abuse the alms of the church for luxury and neglect the ministry, citing 2 Peter 2 verse 13. Therefore, let those who defraud the church know that they will pay God the penalty for this crime. Thus far, the power and primacy of the Pope. And to wrap this all up, now, as I'm reading through this here, what jumps out at me is there's a lot of talk about marriage. And I know that in our culture still today, there's a lot of people that say the church spends far too much time being concerned about marriage. And that's a secular issue. And they might even if they read their book of concords, which listeners to this show might, right? Uh, but they might even say, um, you know, well, they're, 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 we should not get so focused on the secular issues that we lose the, the gospel, but then bringing it back here, but there is still issues in a secular sense, marriage being one of them for life in this world, God gives us this gift of marriage. It is a civil affair. Uh, in that regard, of course, we carry out the marriage right in the church. You know, so what is the relationship here? Why, what, what things are we concerned with or not concerned with as they pertain into the civil realm? Go ahead and help us out here, Dr. Clayton. Well, marriage is an interesting case that there are strong implications in both the civil realm and in the religious realm. And for much of history, marriage was something that was done in the civil realm. In Luther's time, for example, if a couple wanted to get married, they did not first go to the church, as I understand. They went to the civil authorities who then granted the marriage license, and then the couple then proceeded from the courthouse steps, for lack of a better term, to the church steps and received the church's blessing, but it was the church's blessing on the marriage that the state had created in different places and different cultures that had been worked out a little bit differently. But the system that we have in America today where in some ways the pastor is an agent of the state to solemnize marriages, and so the couple gets a, a marriage license from the courthouse, comes to church, and then the pastor signs it as the one officiating and doing a service in the church, is probably a little bit stronger connection of the church to the, the uh, creating of a marriage than it has been. However, that does not make the relationship between a husband and wife and marriage a secular issue. This is an overwhelmingly spiritual issue where the church needs to teach and preach and 
when necessary, administer church discipline and uphold the truth of God's word in that marriage, while it might be created on paper by the state, is a gift of God for the blessing of his people and for the raising of children in Christ's church. And so we have the the odd situation in America today where the government, which on paper is the one that says what is and is not a marriage, says that what is a marriage is very different from God's word says is a marriage. And the church must be faithful not to what the government says a marriage is or is not, but what God says a marriage is or is not. And so the fact that marriage is in some ways a civil issue in no way silences the church's message in that God gives marriage as a lifelong union of one man and one woman for the purpose of uh, nourishing one another and raising children uh, as gifts from God in his church and sharing God's love with our children who are also Christ's children. Now, the second part of that I've said, nowhere are you going to hear that in, in the, the secular civil realm. Uh, that is only the message of the church, and the church needs to be focused on that. I think one of the greatest damaging things to the church in the recent 50, 70 years is the destruction of the family. When the family falls apart, the congregation who is built of families also falls apart. Now, going a little bit further, that we really probably don't have time to get into in depth. Of course, eventually the family falling apart is going to lead to the rest of the society falling apart too. It's just going to take a little longer. It's seen more clearly and, and quickly in the church where the family is more, more obviously the nucleus. Uh, but the the church needs to maintain great energy in teaching and searching God's word about God's design for families, husbands, wives, mothers, fathers, caring for each other and caring for their children and rejoicing and welcoming their children as gifts from God in a way that is not going to be heard outside the church. Now, outside the church, there are things that the church doesn't really have much jurisdiction or say about. Uh, the civil government can set up divorces, set up marriages in, in whatever form they want. They can set up tax breaks or not for marriages. That's not really the jurisdiction of the church. The jurisdiction of the church is whatever mess goes on in how government treats marriage. The church is faithful to God's description of marriage and encourages and builds family up in God's ways and God's truth, regardless of what's going on in the, the world outside, so that Christians may receive the blessing that God intends for the faithful marriage of one man, one woman for life, and the blessing of children that God would give through that. And I like how you said you're 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 going to hear that in the church only. Mm -hmm. The the government really can't talk about it this way because they're, they're not going to be talking about God and the gospel. And is it fair to say and that that's not their calling? That's and it's not, not their what they've calling, been given to right? do. It's not that they're wrong when they don't. It's mm -hmm. just that's not their job. That's not what God right. has given them there to do. Likewise, it's not given to the church to set up tax breaks or whatever exactly. it may be for those who are married or not right. and, and, and those sorts of issues. Right. And and so in, and, and what you're saying here, too, is it, is it fair to say and maybe I'm pulling on Ephesians five here, right, that that really marriage is is the essence of the gospel itself. I mean, when when God talks about marriage, which he does in the Bible a mm -hmm. lot. Ephesians 5 tells us, really, he's talking about Christ and his bride, the church, and what he does in provision for her, um, 
it's the very essence of the gospel itself. And so when the church talks about marriage, we are doing the work of the gospel in that sense. Um, when we're when we're talking about it in that sense, and I think at times maybe um, you know there there can still be the temptation that we forsake that view of marriage in the church and get caught up in in just political issues or secular civil issues related to marriage. Um, but we care about marriage because it is the the very gospel itself. Is that fair to say? The gospel, or at least. A, or the image, image of it, yeah. A model that God uses as a pattern for the gospel, that as a husband loves his wife and gives himself for her, as the wife gives herself to her husband, so we see a parallel relationship to what God has done for his church in that Jesus Christ has given everything of himself for her. There is nothing that Jesus has done that's not for the good and the blessing of his beloved bride, the church. And the church then joyfully receives this and follows along in Christ's way. And so we see in faithful husbands and wives when perhaps a wife... Or an exhorting faithful husbands and wives to live that way. Right. But we also actually see this in, uh, for example, if a wife is stricken with cancer and a husband does everything to care for his wife, even to the point that perhaps the husband's own health declines because he is sacrificing himself to care for his wife or reverse it, that a husband has serious heart problems and the wife gives of herself endlessly and tirelessly to care for this one whom God has given to her. And even through that pain, even through that tragedy, the church can look at this couple and see, I see there what God has done for me. And you're right that that living out of the ups and downs of marriage becomes an image of the gospel of what God has done for us that you will not see any comprehension or mention or understanding of outside the church and frankly outside of the church that understands the theology of the cross and sees that suffering itself is God working the gospel. All right. And 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 then also I see highlighted in paragraph 76 here um, that we're not saying that there isn't jurisdiction for those in the church. And, and I want to jump on that in a second, but maybe in connection with what we covered in the first half of the show that where he says, you know, probably we should be doing jurisdictions as it relates to adulteries, right? Which would be a mm-hmm. marriage related issue. And maybe this is where we can then connect it into the issue that I brought up where we, we see this most often with our Roman Catholic friends. It does happen. I think probably in the Lutheran church as well. Uh, we just probably have less politicians or less notable politicians that get the, the attention and so forth. But you know, where, where, uh, excommunication would be, um, carried out for someone who supports publicly in, in political, uh, in the political realm and things like that, things like abortion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, so those are the things that we, we should be, uh, having jurisdiction for in the church. And, and again, I still want to primarily talk about what is the jurisdiction of the church then, as especially relates to this issue of excommunication, as they've highlighted. Um, but maybe we can talk about it in these sorts of specific issues and, and then relate it to why we should not be 
concerned with the silly things like fasting and things like that. And some of that we highlighted already in the mm-hmm. first half of the show. But go ahead and take it away. I throw a whole message in there, so go wherever you want. Well, I think two things. If we look at paragraph 76 closely, it says, since bishops have tyrannically transferred this jurisdiction, and I understand that jurisdiction to be of excommunication, to themselves alone. So one thing that's going on in your question is that um, a politician in question, let's say, would be a member of a local parish. And what the bishops have done is said that the parish priest no longer has spiritual care of the members of his parish, that this is a case where the bishops have to decide. And so I think more directly at heart with the abuse going on here in this section of the power and primacy of the Pope is that not that this isn't a spiritual issue that should be addressed. It's that it's a spiritual issue that should be addressed by the pastor of the person individually, Uh, that this is something that the parish pastor should deal with as spiritual care for his members, as opposed to what the Roman Catholic church has said is no, this is going to be for the bishops only. Now, um, when the bishops do excommunicate, excommunicate someone who is openly supportive, voting in favor of the murder of children in the womb, um, I would advocate that we see this not as a political move. This is an issue of being faithful to doctrine and the gospel. God is a God of love. God is a God of life. And saying we are going to exercise the authority to take life and not show love arbitrarily because of your location in a womb is directly contrary to the nature of a living, loving God. And so the issue of a bishop excommunicating someone for advocating or voting in favor of or speaking in favor of or practicing in favor of uh, abortion is not a political issue. This is a spiritual issue where the church does have jurisdiction, that we are called to defend the defenseless, to speak for those who cannot speak for themselves, to protect those who are in most need of protection and who is in more need of protection and who has less voice than the infant in the womb. And we are absolutely called to protect and defend them. And if that means calling to repentance and even to excommunicate those who would endanger the life in the womb, this is not a civil issue. This is a spiritual issue. This is a doctrinal issue that needs to be dealt with in the church, but probably could be dealt with by the person's pastor. And that's the issue in the in this section of the power of the primaries of the Pope, that it should be done by their pastor, not someone else more removed from them. And and I'm wondering, again, too, if this is maybe one of those image of the gospel things. And, and let me explain just a little bit here. So as, as I meditate on my catechism, more and more I, I begin to realize, well, so much, but, uh, but, but that these, these commandments especially are given to us that we may see the gospel in them, not just, you know, overall and how that we are saved in our inability to keep them. But you said God is a God of life, right? And and this is exactly what we have in baptism, right? That we are given new life by our good and gracious God and that we are called children of God. We are born again. And this, this seems very much connected with the issue of being born the first time, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it, if we are taking the life of an unborn child, 
you know, what kind of image of the gospel is that? You know, that, you know, should we just be going around and robbing people of their ability to be born again? And I don't know, maybe that's maybe that's too complex and I'm taking it too far. But I, I see this issue of life again as a very image of the gospel, much like we talked about with, with marriage. marriage. Right. Mm-hmm. Any other thoughts on that or did I just... I think you said what needs okay. to be said. All right. Uh, so a uh, few more thoughts here as we have about maybe uh, six minutes or so left in this show. Um, so so kind of put us a, a, a wrap up end here to what we're talking about in terms of jurisdiction, the 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 authority that bishops should have. And and if you have any concluding thoughts on the power and primacy of the pope overall, as I think this really serves as a great summary of the whole document itself. Right. Well, as we get into paragraphs 80, 81, 82, the very last paragraphs of the power and primacy of the Pope, we see that there is a strong financial overtone to what Melanchthon is arguing about here, too. We mentioned it a little bit earlier, but in paragraph 80, Melanchthon says, they themselves should remember that riches have been given to bishops as alms for the administration advantage of the churches. People in Luther's time wanted to become bishops because it was a really wealthy position. And the bishops had taken the fines from these other jurisdictions they'd set up. They had taken the sale of indulgences, and they had built wonderful um, bishops' palaces with them. They were, you know, living in splendor. And what Melanchthon points out here is the abuse is when the church has financial resources, yes, we we care for the people who administer those, and we, we certainly want to care for the people that are proclaiming the gospel and administering the sacraments, but the bulk of that which is given is given not to make the rich richer, but to provide what is needed for those who have nothing and to care for those who have nowhere else to turn. And so Melanchthon points out that a final abuse of the bishops outside of the question of jurisdiction or reserving to themselves that which is not given to them and taking their eye off the ball and working in areas where they shouldn't be working as opposed to uh, neglecting what they should be working is that they've gotten rich off of this abuse and they're keeping the riches to themselves and not giving it to those for whom it was given, namely the care of those in need around us. And so... Um, I guess to sum the whole thing up, um, Melanchthon is pointing out that in every possible way, the bishops of his time following under the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, had everything backwards and upside down. They were not doing what they should have been doing to work backwards here from where we just ended. They were not taking the riches of the church and distributing it to the poor. They were not involved in providing education and teaching for God's people. They were not involved in the care of the destitute. They were not providing for faithful preachers so that their people's ears would hear the gospel. They were not providing for people so that the hungry mouths of their parish would be fed with the life-giving body and blood of Jesus Christ in the Lord's Supper. They were not using the financial resources that they had for any of the reasons that God would give the church financial resources when he does. It's not for us to keep for ourselves. It's not for us to grow rich on. It's for us to serve 
and give to others. We are only given two so that we can give to others, and the bishops were not doing this. And so they were abusing the riches that they had uh, by keeping to themselves instead of giving. They had back, that backwards. They were keeping to themselves administrative functions that were more given to the state rather than focusing on the uh, spiritual care of their people. So they were doing it. They were not given, and they were not doing what they were given. They were claiming that they had all sorts of authority. This is going back further now into the power and primacy of the Pope. They were claiming to themselves all sorts of authorities and roles that Scripture had not given to bishops, much less to pastors. And the only thing that had been given to a bishop as opposed to a pastor was to ordain other pastors to faithfully preach the word and administer the sacraments. And the bishops weren't doing that. So they had that backwards. It's like you had one job ordain faithful pastors, and you didn't do it. For the proclamation of the gospel. For <laughs> the proclamation of the gospel, yes. So you had one job, you didn't do it, and so you lost sight of everything else by becoming secular princes, by becoming government officials. Uh, and in the meantime, the gospel was not being proclaimed. The people were not being given the life-giving word and sacraments. And so by losing sight of what first pastors were given to do, and then forsaking what bishops were given to do separate from pastors, which is only ordination according to the power and primacy of the Pope, they had utterly forsaken everything that they were given to do. And so the Lutheran theologians were left saying, there's there's nothing there for us to follow. We can't. We, we are called to preach the gospel, administer the sacraments, and you're telling us we can't do that. That's the only thing that you should be doing, <laughs> and you're not. So <clears throat> we will. Yeah, that's a great, great summary to this whole document. I mean, just excellent job with that. And it, it really highlights what is at issue, right? You know, this is why we cannot, I mean, it's a beautiful summary of this whole document again, that we cannot submit to your authority because you had one job. It was the gospel and to make sure that that gospel is proclaimed and you're not doing it, you're forsaking that. And I, and I think this is an interesting, you know, relation there that um, you highlight here in the last paragraph of you know the 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 riches of the church are are to to do the gospel ministry for the poor and so forth, and instead you're using it to build palaces for yourself, and you're you're exploiting the poor in in you know to gain more riches for yourself instead of for them. That's that's just an interesting thought, which then you know. Lots of pl practical applications that we can make to today. There's plenty of TV preachers and so forth. Unfortunately, we are out of time, uh, but uh, we certainly thank uh, Reverend Dr. Kurt Clayton, who is the pastor of Zion and Mascuta, for joining us today, giving us the excellent summary and wrapping up the power and primacy of the Pope. We thank you, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, when we convene for Concord, if you have a question or a comment that you would like us to answer on the show, especially as we move into the form of Concord beginning next week, you can reach us at 314-996-1542. You can also email us, kfuo at kfuo.org, and you can also find us on social media at KFUO Radio. Thanks again for stopping by today. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, and until next time, keep confessing, church. Church.